0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, solving the crimes against humanity with a giant magnifying glass as big as the super blood wolf moon zeroed in on that guy in the insane asylum who has somehow gotten his hands on the remote control for reality. Hey, stop that. No, we mean it. Don't press the purple button. No! Plus part 27 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we talked with James L. Cambias about his science fiction novel, Arcad's World. This is a book in the great tradition of Heinlein and Kipling, and there's a touch of Andre Norton Planetary Quest in there as well. It's really, really fun stuff. Jim Cambius has created a wonderful panoply of alien species and a very winning sort of Kim-like hero in Arcad. It's really good stuff, and Jim will tell us all about it. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. Hey, we've got new eARCs available at Bain eBooks. You can find Bain eBooks at Bain.com. Now, an eARC is the sound you're at-home corporate spying device, I mean your Echo or whatever, gets caught playing EDM late at night and having a little rave with your toaster and refrigerator. Hey, you guys, you know that's going on, right? No, no, no. That's not what an eARC is at all. An eARC is an electronic advanced reading copy, which is the form of a book that we used to call The Galley's. Now we offer it as an ebook for those who just want to get their favorite author's book ahead of time or try something new ahead of time. We are perfectly willing to sell that to you as long as you realize there might be a few typos in there we haven't caught yet. First up, we have 1637 The Polish Maelstrom eArt by Eric Flint. Hey, it's a standalone novel by Eric. Strange Weather. The Ottoman Empire has captured Vienna and is now laying siege to the Austrian government in exile established in the city of Linz. Both the United States of Europe and the Kingdom of Bohemia have come to Austria's assistance, but everyone knows this is going to be a long and brutal struggle. Meanwhile, Poland is coming to a boil. The Bohemians have sent an army into Poland with the goal of expanding King Albrecht Wallenstein's growing empire in Eastern Europe. When Grantville General Mike Stern sends the Hangman Regiment of his 3rd Division into the region, they find themselves at the center of a growing storm, one that threatens the continued existence of the United States of Europe. The maelstrom in Poland grows and grows and grows. Will it drag all its displaced Americans and their allies down with it? Also out in York is A Witch in Time by William Mark Simmons. Something wicked this way comes. As founder of After Dark Investigations, half-vampire Christopher Chesty has seen his fair share of the seedy side of the supernatural world. Most recently, someone cut the gas line of his SUV and then ran over him with his semi-truck while he waited for a tow. But this is the third time Chris has died. It's old hat at this point now for him. Awakened in a world he doesn't quite recognize, he'll have to use his wits to keep the supernatural world at bay. Interpol is interested in some of his associations with Vlad Dracul's grandson, better known as Dracula, and a trio of witches from Greek myth want him dead, and for good this time. Bad enough, but what's worse is that the IRS is looking into his tax returns. A Witch in Time e-Arc by William Mark Simmons and 1637... The Polish Maelstrom e by Eric Flint are now available exclusively at Bain eBooks. Check them out, get them, and read them.
2: I want to welcome James L. Cambius to the podcast. Hello, Jim. How's it going?
3: Pretty well, thank you. Glad to be here.
2: Great. Uh, James L. Cambius is a writer, game designer, and co-founder of Zygote Games he has been nominated for the James Tiptree for the James Tip Tree Jr. Award and the 2001 John W. Campbell Campbell Award for best new writer and he lives in western Massachusetts and we at Bain have put out a new book by Jim Cambius now at booksellers everywhere is a new novel it's called Arcad's World and this is this is something in the classic um, just science fiction adventure realm that's that's really a wonderful uh, a wonderful um, quest novel so Jim tell us a little bit about maybe uh the genesis of um of the book you, you before we get into the book itself uh maybe you can give us an idea of um why you decided how this came to you
3: Well it um it came to me because I, uh, I I felt like there weren't enough boys adventure novels being written in science fiction anymore um uh it's always been a, a a way that people have dismissed science fiction, saying, Oh well, it's just boys' adventures. Um but uh it, w- when we live in a time when one of the uh main problems in education is getting boys to read, which uh, you know, you can find any number of concerned articles about.
2: Um, yeah, sure. I've written a couple. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. And and so, you know, um I felt like we're not serving what was originally science fiction's core constituency. So I wanted to to step up.
2: Um, (laughs) Do you, are you influenced by the, it sounds like you are by like the Heinlein Juvies and the, um, and Andre Norton's uh, great stories, that sort of thing.
3: Well, certainly the Heinlein Juveniles. Yes. Um, I, I have to confess I've only read Andre Norton. I think I read the first Andre Norton book I've ever read just a Last year, um I was never a big fan of of norton as a as a when I was a boy. Um, I'm not sure why my I know my school library had them. Um, I remember some of the covers, but i don't for whatever reason, I don't think I ever opened one up until I was fifty two years old and picked one up in a used bookstore.
2: Well, this definitely has the feel of a Heinlein juvenile, i'd say um a planet a planet based one.
3: Right. yes well sort of by um, he was one of my inspirations. Of course, another one was um Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Um uh that's Absolutely. one of my favorite yeah. novels and um it is such a, an, a uh, you know a a, a a affectionate and glowing portrayal of India as Kipling remembered it from when he was a child growing up there. And so um there's definitely a lot of Kim in in Arcad's DNA. In fact, there's even a little bit of a very inside joke hidden in Arcad's name, um, because um, Arcad the the word actually means friend. And of course, in Kipling, one of uh, one of Kim's nicknames uh, among his uh, acquaintances was Little Friend of All the World so that was in there deliberately
2: yeah and the uh the sort of uh society of all sorts of cultures all coming together in a sort of giant marketplace planet kind of uh kind of deal has has that feel as well that um
3: yes i was i was sort of- deliberately trying to, to recreate that that feel um and then of course there's a lot of Treasure Island in the book as well, a group of people going off on a treasure hunt, and uh, there's some conflicting agendas among the treasure hunters that we don't know about until things start to fall apart. Um, and um, uh, there's, of course, a dash of The Jungle Book, also by Kipling, because Arcad can communicate with all of the different alien Species inhabiting the planet Yavusa, whereas his human companions can't, for the most part. So, in a way, it's not unlike Mowgli talking with all the the people of the jungle, as he calls them, in, in the Jungle Books. The different species.
2: Yeah, now that you talk about it, you know, I could see a lot of Kipling in 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 this. So, um, I guess should we talk about? the world first, and then about Arcad's character, um, or would you like to dive in and talk about Arcad himself? It, the planet's called Syavusa, um, and the city that we find uh, Arcad in is Ayaviz, um, and it just, uh, I mean, it's its like this crowded sort of moss-easily tavern of a place with just every sort of alien you can imagine, right? What's
3: going on here? Well, uh, yeah. And partly it was simply that I really love that kind of setting in science fiction. Um, you know, I, I I was 11 or 12 years old when the original Star Wars came out, and that Cantina scene, you know, just you know was just so awesome. Um, and uh, you, you know, I also have to confess, I had sort of a, a I do I enjoy creating aliens, and I enjoy writing them. And people tell me I'm good at it, so I decided to play to my strength in the uh, in this book. So, you know, alright. People like my aliens, fine. Here's a whole bunch of my aliens. Um,
2: well we could talk about some of the uh the alien species um in, in maybe a moment. Um it, it's a highly populated place. There's and it is a tidally locked planet, right?
3: Right. It turns one face perpetually to its sun so that as the as the and the the, the city where the uh, plot begins is right on the on the terminator line so that the sun is uh, i think I describe it as being perpetually a red dome on the horizon and um it's there because it has access to the to the permanent ice cap on the dark side of the planet um and so it's it's also the spaceport. So that city is the interface between the planet and the, the populated galaxy. So that that's where the newcomer, the the humans who have come to Ar, to Seavusa arrive, and uh, that's where Arkad finds them.
2: What is this thing that is circling the city? That was kind of cool.
3: Well, that was uh, just something I came up with to show that this is that it's not a ruin. That that the Whatever the ancient machines are. And later in the book, there's a bit more revealed about them, which I won't spoil, but whatever the ancient machines are that built this place and still underlie it are still active, that this is not some ancient remnants, but you know, the city is not overwhelmed by ice because there are big machines constantly melting the ice away. <clears throat> and, um, um, also, it just gave me a nice image, a viv- nice vivid image for the first scene of the story.
2: And the inhabitants don't necessarily uh, know what's going on. They came after the substrate was sort
3: of laid down by a earlier... Correct. Uh, yeah, the, the inhabitants of, of Fiavusa mostly don't really seem to care even. You know, they live there, and uh, uh, if there's stuff going on that they're unaware of they don't really it, it doesn't really bother them um my idea is that that this planet winds up being a place where where exiles go so that at least a couple of the uh the species inhabiting it are uh species whose home worlds have been occupied or in one case it's a uh a, a dissident group that has fled a uh a powerful interstellar uh, empire um, and so the, the humans who's in the story, whose home world, the earth has also been conquered by that, by that aggressive empire, you know, sort of fit in there. Uh, and, um, that way also there's no authority. <laughs> there's nobody to get in the way to interfere with all of the pirates and bandits and con men and whatnot that, uh, Stand in the way of our heroes getting to the uh to the lost spaceship they're looking for, because of course in a you know in a well run civilized orderly society you know you can't run away from pirates
2: <laughs> yeah yeah, and the sh- the ship would already be uh
3: yes and some competent person would have come along and salvaged the lost spaceship, and that would be that <laughs> yeah.
2: so yeah so um it's it's a cool sort of uh chaotic and Somewhat here it also reminded me a lot of Jack Vance worlds, so has a sort of
3: um yeah uh, guilty guilty as charged I'm a huge Vance <laughs> fan based on his uh planet uh planet of adventure series. I wrote that for his Jackson games
2: some of your alien um dialogue really reminded me of Vance's as, as well
3: well, Vance often puts uh very elevated highfalutin uh uh speech in the mouths of, of his characters, and some of that i uh I echoed some of that although the the main language that you that you that the reader encounters the the inhabitants of of Siavusa speaking is um actually a pigeon, and I made it careful i was careful to make it literally all words of one syllable um so you know you get talk like this, which is all short words. <clears throat> and, um, then there's, uh, a species called the etuti who are, uh, they're similar to birds, although they're furry and they have a very, uh, elaborate and sort of formalized way of speaking where every, uh, excellent noun deserves an appropriate adjective. Um, and that i actually took was uh, sort of inspired by um, ancient uh ancient greek uh, uh epics where every um, all the characters get a, a sobriquet you know so it's like you know, wily odysseus or, or brave hector or whatever so i decided you know here's a civilization where everything gets a sobriquet and you can have fun with, with changing up the sobriquet depending on your mood and what's going on
2: yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's some great stuff in here. I love, uh, I was going to bring this up, um, in a bit, but, um, there's a particular exchange where, uh, where Arkad's friend is talking about a girl, uh, e e who he's, he's courting and he says, lovely, a tete has jealous suitors who resent handsome tattoos, romantic success. He's, he's also talking about himself in the third person, um,
3: Ituti, ituti. don't use pronouns.
2: <laughs> yeah. And uh, Arcad replies, perhaps cautious Taitu should seek a willing female who does not have so many dangerous suitors. So they, uh, there's, there's. I love that adjective noun um, combination that they, that that the Ituti use. Um, it's a wonderful, uh, it, it's a wonderful evocation both of the way that they look and because they're bird-like. And that seems like the way birds might talk, especially like birds with a lot of plumage, you know, pretty plumage.
3: Yeah, the male, the male the tuti all have, uh, uh, you know, red and red and orange stripes and uh, bright, bright colors, and that's part of displaying them as part of their part of their, how they court.
2: <coughs> well, let's let's talk about Arcad. Tell us about our our hero, um, our main character. When we meet him, he's a kid. He's a Dirty kid with a blanket <laughs> covering
3: and a bunch of layers of plastic on his feet. Um, I had some discussion with some people in my writing workshop about Arcad's personality because they felt that at least one person suggested that maybe he should be a little more, I don't know, uh, damaged seeming because he's he's sort of grown up, you know, completely on his own on the street, and I stayed away from that. Partly because I thought that if he wasn't the kind of person who can bounce back from this from almost anything, he'd be dead by now in the story. <laughs> you know, that mm-hmm. for him for him to be a survivor, he has to have a survivor personality, which means he has to be, you know, pretty emotionally uh sturdy and resourceful. So Arcad is very sturdy and resourceful. He uh he you know, is not the sort of person to give up on anything, uh, and he's, uh, constantly, uh, constantly, you know, very aware of his situation all the time. You know, he has survived partly by being aware of everything around him. There's a, a scene I put in at one point where he is, you know, encountering humans for the first time and is, is, you know, reading them the way that one Reads people. And then he realizes that for the first time practically in his life, he's with people who can read him back. You know, that they can also tell what he is thinking and feeling just by looking at him, which most of the other species on Siavusa, you know, don't bother with because there's only one Arcad on the planet. So why would they bother? Yeah,
2: he's even a. He's at one point worried because he's attracted to one of these humans, and uh, he's never had to um, to hide his attraction
3: before. Yes, he has a little embarrass- some embarrassing moments there, but um, and of course that's that's another element is that yes, there is a, a love story, uh, ultimately a, a slightly tragic love story in the in this book. But um.
2: yeah, well let's um. I- maybe set up the aliens a little bit more before we talk about the humans that that Arcad encounters. Right, are, let's talk about Arcad's background. So he um, he does he does remember his mother, but he has grown up he's grown up an orphan, but he does have a memory of his mother and he has a a sort of aid that helps him, right?
3: Yes, he has a, a essentially an e-book reader uh um although I assumed it's a bit more durable being made for you know infant to be to withstand toddlers and infants, and it's made in the shape of a toy owl, so it's called Wall, which is a very obscure tip of the hat to um a a milney's uh, uh winnie the Pooh books um uh there's at the, in the of piece the the end pages of the uh collected winnie the Pooh stories there's signatures by all of the characters an owl. Scientist his name Wall because one of the running jokes in Winnie the Pooh of course is that Owl is not very wise at all and doesn't actually know how to read. <laughs> <clears throat> um so anyway, Wall is our cat's is uh, uh book and it's got well among other things, most of the classics of children's literature for the past two centuries in it so that um you know he, that's a lot of what Arcad knows about human society is based on books and stories. And um that's sort of one of the themes of the book, after all, is that you know, that's that's one of the things that's important. <laughs> <laughs> serving the continuity of human experience.
2: <laughs> yeah. At at one point he asks uh the other humans if animals actually talk because they seem to do it in the books. He wasn't sure. He didn't think so.
3: They've got talking animals in them, and he's grown up on a planet with a lot of talking non-humans. So, you know, maybe. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yes, unfortunately, one of the other characters has to break it to him. that uh, While he's seen humans talk to animals, he's never seen the animals talk back.
2: So what about Arkad's mother, and what does he remember of his past?
3: Mother was part of the crew of a spacecraft carrying this isn't really a spoiler carrying a trove of of human of earth's cultural treasures uh evacuating them in the face of an invasion by a incredibly powerful alien empire um, um, the elmis thorn and um it reached Siavusa, evading pursuit and uh Landed there and couldn't really go on. The ship was damaged at some point in transit. (coughs) So, um, Arkad's mother, uh, he doesn't remember his father because I, in my head I know that his father died during the voyage. Um, and, uh, his grandfather was the only other member of the crew (coughs) and, um, died, um, shortly after their arrival. So Arkad has very dim memories of his grandfather. But then he and his mother had to travel away from the ship. So uh, one of the ways that Arkad knows the way to find it is that he's got some old pictures of himself and his mother or pictures taken by his mother as they traveled, and So he's retracing their route backwards by matching up his appearance in the photos trying to figure out where they were taken. And um, so, you know, she reached uh she she brought him to Siavusa. I'm guessing he would have been about six or seven at that point, um uh before she died. And then the rest of Arcad's life, uh and I won't tell you how long that's been, um uh has been uh, on his own.
2: Arcad's mother and Arcad in the ship. They were not exactly, they weren't on a pleasure voyage when they crashed on this planet. They were, and they weren't on an exploration either. They were fleeing something. Tell us what happened to Earth. I don't think this is a spoiler either, because this is part of the the reason the humans show up in the first few chapters.
3: Right. Earth has been conquered by a civilization called uh, the Family of Species, which is uh, uh, dominated by this one species called the Elmethorms and they um uh, they are conquering other intelligent life partly uh for their own aggrandizement. but their their ostensible reason their their stated purpose that they the, that they believe is their their altruistic mission is they are trying to unite uh, organic life biological creatures against the threat of uh, the very powerful machine civilizations, which also exist in, the, in that future. And um, so that is, it's made fairly obvious in the novel that that's at least a self-serving delusion or, or pretext more than anything. And that the uh, the Elmos Thorn are, are mostly just old garden variety imperialists.
2: Um, Explain how their, uh, their little caste system works. If, that was a very interesting sort of uh, creation there.
3: Right. Well, I based the Elmas Thorn sort of on a somewhat more extreme version of the the reproductive dynamics of a pack species on Earth, like like wolves, say. Because um, in in wolves, right, you have the the alpha pair, um, you know, or the highest status ones, and their offspring, you know, sort of get they and their offspring kind of get first crack at the resources and um I I sort of cranked that up to 11 almost more like a almost verging on on a social insect system where the the Elmesthorn Alphas basically they they command the loyalty of of a, of a group and pretty much all of that group's efforts are devoted to taking care of the Alphas and their their offspring um and, you know, this is a system that works okay when you're a pre-technological or you know, up to early modern, modern, you know, modern era civilization, but then it goes catastrophically wrong, sort of, for the Thorne when they develop mass communication media. Because all of a sudden, instead of the person you sort of semi-instinctively worship and serve, you know, your your alpha is not just, is not a A relative who you've you know grown up in the same community with it's essentially movie stars you know they're they're a civilization ruled by movie stars basically <laughs> and you know they are infinitely more desirable and charismatic than you know your local alphas, so they become these sort of super alphas and um, you know I mentioned that they're, they're world wars uh, in the transition era in the, you know the industrial era were all about essentially which celebrities would be the rulers <laughs> um and uh you know so they are re- are organizing their whole empire that way essentially on a larger scale where the the other species in the family of species uh are being essentially made to exist in order to serve and adore the Elmastor.
2: Yeah. They're even, on, conc- on, conquered or- on Conquered Earth, they're even breeding humans, too.
3: Yeah, or genetically modifying. Yeah. And, uh, one of the characters in the story is, is, uh, has fled Earth, uh, and, uh, she is a product of their attempts at genetic modification. Re Bright is her name. And, um, I tried to pick a name that sounded made up, basically, um, and um, so she has fled Earth and has been working with the the uh, Terran government in exile on another planet to you know, as part of their their espionage system. And she is one of the backers of this uh, mission, as a matter of fact, because um, um, she is able to, to supply some of the funds to make the whole expedition and to search for the lost ship possible.
2: So tell us about, all right, so Arcad encounters his first humans, and they are looking for this ship. Um, Who are they, and why are they looking for it? What do they hope to gain?
3: Well, they're looking for it because the ship, the Rosetta, is carrying just an absolute treasure trove of historical and cultural artifacts from Earth. It's, you know, things like the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, um, various art treasures, um, the royal, the crown jewels of half the monarchies on Earth, um, uh, contents of museums and things like that. And it's it's all packed in there um, and um, uh, by if that is in under the control of the of the elma Thorn, then that sort of would give their control over human legitimacy and they can and they can control access to human culture much better whereas if if it's in the hands of the government in exile then you know that sort of lends them legitimacy and and they can preserve earth's culture unedited by alien hands um and so that's, you know, a, a pretty valuable treasure to be searching for, much better than a bunch of, yeah. of silver.
2: It's got the Constitution and, and things like that in there.
3: Right, yes. You know, it's, it's the national, it's every country's national archive and, and crown jewels and, and National History Museum all stuffed into one spaceship. I mentioned that there were, I think, three similar ship, three ships of that type, and the other two uh, got away, I think. Um, but, the 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 Rosetta, that's this one, was lost. So it's a, it's a big chunk of humanity's heritage is on board. And, um, so the, the, the team looking for it are, um, Jacob Sato, who is a, uh, archaeologist, basically a historian. Um, my, uh, my capsule description of him is, uh, you know, Indiana Jones in space. (laughs) Um, he is looking for the, for the, um, for the Rosetta, and is sort of the only person who who thinks it's possible to find it. Everybody else has more or less written it off as lost. Um, he has gotten Ree to to support it, the, the uh, expedition, and come along as his uh, as his backer, and also you know, she has valuable skills of her own. Uh, and then uh, the third member of that team is a young woman named Baichi, who is uh unique she is a a cyborg, basically she is the product of one of the machine civilizations uh as a failed attempt to create an intermediary between humans and the machine civilization and um she was the only survivor of a whole cohort of them, and the rest of the cohort went bad spectacularly um, uh partly because the machines of course really don't understand. Didn't quite understand what they were doing, so they decided well, instead of having this prolonged childhood, we'll just you know educate these beings and and force grow them to adulthood in about five years. so you have a bunch of five year olds with superman level uh strength and uh invulnerability um, uh and uh superhuman intelligence and and knowledge, but they're still kinda act like spoiled toddlers basically because they have not had any socializing and um so yes things go badly baichi is the only one who survives and uh she is um her her sort of she has sort of vowed to herself that that she won't let that happen to her so she basically is is very tightly controlled everything she does and says is very very tightly controlled um and uh she is very, she she has complete conscious control of her emotional state at all times. You know, unlike you or me, she can decide whether she is angry or happy or sad or uh, falling in love or whatever and can prevent it. Um, and so she spends much of the novel uh, making sure that she is not attracted to our cat. Um,
2: yeah. She can also decide whether she needs to breathe or not, and <laughs> some other.
3: I figured, I, I was trying to think about what would be a real, you know, plausible, but still hard SF superhuman. And so, yeah, basically she's got little tiny miniaturized, uh, little tiny fusion power plants in all of her cells, you know. So she doesn't need, uh she doesn't need um oxygen <clears throat> unless she wants to talk. She doesn't really need food either, uh, except in terms of raw materials when she was growing or something. But, um, yeah, so she is, uh, she is incredibly powerful. Uh, I worked out that the main limit on her abilities is heat. That, that, you know, when she is, when she is doing feats of super strength or whatever, she's going to be throwing off heat like a, like a, you know, a big truck engine. You know, and, and so at, at some point there comes a point where, like her, you know, her skin will be too hot to 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 for anyone to approach. So limit on her abilities.
2: And she's uh, her very uh, this this sort of containedness, her her decision not to use this great strength is what's so appealing about her, as well as what's frustrating sometimes for for Arcad and
3: the others. Yeah, right. I mean, you're you're traveling across, you know, a dangerous environment with essentially Superman and yet, you know, you still have to deal with, you know, bandits and pirates and stuff <laughs> because she won't take action.
2: Jacob, our uh Indiana Jones-ish uh leader is um he is a human He remembers Earth Before the Conquest. He's the only person
3: among them that does, right? Yes, there is an odd disjuncture in time, which I will let the reader find out more about. But yes, Jacob is uh, an older man, and his youth is uh, not that far in our own future, even though the, the story takes place further down the line. So yes, I wanted Jacob to be a recognizably contemporary human, essentially because he's got to be a a foil for all of these exotic (laughs) characters, you know, a genetically modified human, a cyborg human. So he has to be a fairly baseline human that my readers will recognize. So,
2: Yeah. And he also never forgets uh, what jerks the Elmesthorn are, which is good.
3: He was a soldier in the War of Conquest. You know, he, he he was a soldier on the losing side of that War of Conquest, so he remembers very vividly.
2: So what are, um, give us some idea of the terrain. All right, so they're going on a quest out of the city um, across this, um, I guess they're going along the Terminator. Um, give us some idea of the terrain and the species that Arcad and humans might encounter on this quest.
3: Sure. So uh, they set off from, from the city Ayaviz, Um and uh yes, as you say, travel along travel southward along the, the edge of the uh the Terminator, uh the the Shadowlands, I think I call it. Um and of course that terrain is I envisioned it as being kind of like um um Scandinavia or um well New England. You know, it's chilly. Um uh, you know there's there's the permanent shadows of objects fill up with snow. You know, the sun will melt the snow where it touches, but in the shadow of things, there's there's a, a cone of snow pointing away from the sun, um, and that's where a, uh, a species I call the Ah uh, live. <laughs> and when I was, when we were doing the audiobook version, I told the uh, the reader that uh, you're going to hate me <laughs> when you get to those guys. Um, uh but um they are they're not native to the planet either um and they are uh very scholarly and so Arcad stops off with them first to get some help figuring out where to go based on the the photos he has and then from there they travel along out uh, uh westward they're always going west towards the uh, the center of the the day side um and again that's another little tip of the hat. There's the, the famous um Chinese novel, The Journey to the West, <clears throat> um, about a group of peculiar characters, including the monkey king and the pig demon uh and a dragon in the form of a horse escorting a Buddhist sage to to the west, which in the course of that story means India, but um um in this they're looking they're going a bit further. Um, and so they're making their own journey to the west, and so they they travel out partway along this, this peninsula, where they get involved in the domestic struggles of a group of uh, of a family of Ituti who live there, and then they cross the Strait to the continent in the center of the Daylands on a on a sailing a sailing boat, which gets intercepted by pirates. Uh the pirates are a, another species which I rather like. They're, they're called the psifu and they're these tentacled beings. They have uh they're these sort of stumpy cylindrical bodies with four tentacles on the top and four tentacles on the bottom. And they don't really have eyes. They sort of see with their whole skin, but their their vision is most acute at the tips of their tentacles. So when they're looking at you they point a tentacle at you. Um and they um they're amphibious. They can swim. They're native to ocean as well as, as land. So they, um, you know, they they make pretty good pirates. Um, and they're very um, creative and artistic. They um, they like to make stuff, and uh, you know, everything they have is is elaborately decorated. Um, and so there's a whole long sequence in there where where Jacob has this sort of endless discussion with a pirate captain about a- theories of aesthetics. Which I put in, um, and the the, the Pifu have a, a fun way of communicating as well. So they they speak in the very simple, all short word uh, uh, pigeon tongue, but then they have tentacle gestures, which uh, are um, you know very uh, much more florid type of and, and very heavily metaphorical type of speech.
2: Yeah. It's it's sometimes they are they're undercutting what they've just said even by their by, by their gestures and Arcad's able he knows this language
3: yes he has he has learned to interpret their gestures um, so yes uh, often what they're what they're gesturing is is a very sort of sardonic aside to what they actually say out loud um, and they um, they are another species whose homeworld was conquered by the Elmas Thorn partly because they have a, a an absolute inability to to unify in large societies at all. Um everything they do is is done with you know, sort of small groups. I I think the I think I mentioned at one point that like the largest partnership they've known is something like a dozen or two people. I think it's two dozen individuals. Um And so they, they form these sort of family slash business partnerships like that, but then they can't really be loyal to any larger organization. So everything else is done essentially as a, on contracts. So, you know, when, at one point later on in the story we meet a, uh, a Psifu who was, uh, what we would say basically the Secretary of Defense for his, uh, for his space habitat that he lived in, you know, a space colony. But, you know, instead of running for office or whatever or getting appointed, you you put in a bid for the job and you get the contract for a set time.
2: Yeah, the uh, the humans for a time work for is that the guy they work for to build the uh, the machine that will um, perhaps <laughs> save the world or not? That is a wonderful. Uh, I, I don't. We can't give it away, but uh, just just getting to that point in the book, that little it's a little gem of a uh, of a of a chapter. Um, it it reminded me somewhat of the uh, like Stanislaw Lem's Siberiad uh, stories. Even it's almost allegorical.
3: Yeah, there's a little bit. I, I although I have to say I'm going to be kind of a, a spoil sport here. I tend to shy away from. A- Actual allegory in my stories. If aliens resemble things, if, if things that my aliens are doing, you know, seems to have relevance to contemporary human society, well, that's just a fortunate coincidence. But I try to make the aliens exist on their own terms, you know, they're, they're aliens first.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, this was more a philosophical point than uh, a point about humans in particular. <laughs> um, about the futility of of uh, something, I guess. But uh, it.
3: Well, I also uh, try to make it almost kind of an O. Henry short story. It's like an O. Henry short story written by aliens.
2: It is. It is. It, it's great, and uh, it's. I mean, it's something that um, will be a great little uh, nugget for the reader when they get there. Um, so uh, what? there's pirates the uh what other dangers will they will they face
3: after they cross after they escape the pirates and cro- finish getting onto the mainland they fall in with a group of um uh mercenary soldiers working for a uh of of the vizim are these big sort of sort of like a cross between a snake and a mole they're big long bodied uh legless creatures with with four Digging arms at the front, and they they dig. They live underground, and they're uh, obsessive builders. Um, and they have this sort of semi-matriarchal society. Um, and um, the the war that they get that the characters get caught up in is a, a an inheritance dispute between two female vizim, and one of them is trying to reconquer the family stronghold from her sister, and it's kind of implied that her claim is entirely bogus, but uh she believes it and she's got the money to hire mercenaries and all that's all that really matters. Um and so, um you know, at one the the humans fall in with them but try to desert, but um Arcad is recaptured and so he spends part of the book with this uh basically a firebomb glued to his head <clears throat> um the uh, the leader of the the Vizim commander, you know, wants to ensure his lo- make sure he doesn't run away again. So she glues this this uh, plastic bubble full of full of incendiary chemical to his forehead, and tells him that you know, in, at some point it's going to eat through the the containment and, and you know set his head on fire. So in, unless he's cooperative, and then she'll give him the solvent to take it off with. Um, and so, you know, we get to see a, a little bit of warfare on on Siavusa. It's this interesting mix of things. Um, um, some of the soldiers use, like the FIFU, use things like um, um, acid projectors, um, you know, the devices that spray boiling acid at their opponents, whereas the, the Vizim, you know, just wear big, sharp Wolverine claws and slash at each other. Um, hardly anybody uses guns. Because um I, I set it up so that A, most of them are kind of nearsighted, like a lot of animals on Earth are. Uh, you know, humans actually have rather good vision. Uh, and the other thing is that humans are almost unique in being able to throw things. That's, that's like Arcad's superpower that has allowed him to survive on the streets of an alien city is You know he can he can hit people ten yards away (laughs) accurately. You know, and and hardly anybody else can do that Um, because humans have these you know big long throwing arms, and um, it's something we seem to be you know legitimately good at, Um, and so that's his his alien superpower. Um, And so you know because of that most of the species on Ciabusa anyway come late to the idea of weapons that throw things. So, you know they would probably eventually develop guns or whatever, but for them fighting is something you do by getting up next to somebody and <clears throat> hitting them or squirting them or something.
2: Well it makes for good adventure as well.
3: Well I was going to say there's also economic limits. I mean the planet has access to some advanced, extremely advanced technology through trade, but most of what they can build, because the planet it's mostly smallish settlements. You know, they're mostly limited to, to, to what you could build in a small settlement. So it's a, you know, I guess a uh, roughly American Civil War level technology, except that they can buy, that they have access to imported you know, super tech from the machine civilization for some applications.
2: Now, Arcad um, over the course of the book, which the really one of the cool parts of uh, of the book is that he he does change and he becomes more and more of a leader um, just by testing himself. Um, he becomes more sure of his own ability to deal with problems.
3: Yeah, well, he's always been you know he's, he even at the beginning he's kind of a confident person, but he's never dealt with other humans before, of course. So yes initially he's very deferential to them because you know they're they're humans from off world and you know he's just a street urchin but you know after they've after they've, after they've saved him and he's saved them they're all comrades in arms and, and uh yeah and then um very late in the book uh the the group is sort of without a leader <laughs> for reasons which I won't spoil and um somebody has to step up
2: so well let's leave it there with the book um what else would would you like to say about it that um that might
3: um I mean I as I said you know I originally envisioned it as as a it's it published as a novel for adults and and there's certainly I think I included enough levels of there's enough levels of story going on that you know a, a a A younger reader can read it just for the for what happens next, and an adult can read it for the characters and the uh the speculations about alien societies and whatnot um, but um I had originally actually uh tried to pitch it as a you know a suitable anyway for younger readers um, you know, so I think it's uh I think if you if you know a bright twelve uh, year old or whatever, uh, uh, that would be uh, you know that's sort of who I had in mind when I was writing this book. Yeah,
2: and the main character is is fifteen or so,
3: right? He, yeah. For a bright twelve year old, and then the same bright twelve year old twenty years later is who this novel is. Yeah.
2: Well, didn't Heinlein say he was essentially writing science fiction books—the same science fiction books he would write with adult, for adults, except that his main characters were uh, just happened to be uh, teenagers in the in the juveniles.
3: Kids don't like kids. Don't necessarily read stories about kids. <coughs> you know, um, Huckleberry Finn was not written as a children's book. Speaking of another bit of the book's DNA. <coughs> mm-hmm.
1: Well, what
2: are you, uh, what are you working on now, Jim? What's your current project that you have underway?
3: My project, which I'm nearly finished with, uh, is a contemporary fantasy novel. It's called The Initiate. And it's, um, I suppose the elevator pitch is something like If Harry Potter Was John Wick. It's, um, um, a man has joined a secretive, uh, powerful organization of magicians in the modern world. Real wizards in the modern world and is trying to destroy them and um, so you know he spends a lot of time being paranoid because you know if if the the police learn your name they can put out an APB on you and freeze your bank account if wizards learn your name they can send demons after you (laughs) Um, so um, you know it mostly takes place in and around New York um, uh, and so i've been learning a lot about that city um and uh uh it's it's nearly done and i'm hoping to get it to my publisher in the next couple of weeks
2: well that's very cool that sounds great but um, out right now at booksellers everywhere is arcad's world this uh great science fiction uh novel by james l cambius uh jim thank you so much for talking to us about um arcad's world today
3: well thank very much for having me on. Uh, This has been great, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast.
1: Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of The Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts, until the gods sent the great hero Roan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword.
0: Chapter 18 Where's your cane? Papka asked. I threw it in the river, Jagdish answered. He'd be damned if he presented himself to his new assignment looking like a cripple. Besides, his leg only really hurt in the mornings, or when it was too cold or too hot, or when he walked, or put too much weight on it. He spread his arm so he could see his new uniform. How do I look? He asked his new bride. Like the finest warrior in all of Vidal, she lied. Or perhaps she was still so happy to have been assigned a higher status husband that she actually believed that. To Jagdish, when he looked in the mirror... All he saw was a warrior so pathetic that he'd managed to lose a duel even when his opponent had been unfairly outnumbered and who'd had a Thakur die under his watch as a result. It had taken months for his arm and leg to heal enough to return to duty, but by then the story had spread and no fighting Palton wanted him. The finest warrior, I doubt that. You will make an excellent result, Pakpa meant well, but she'd grown up in the worker caste. She couldn't grasp the nuances of rank and assignment within the warrior caste hierarchy. To her, being married off to a miserable failure of a soldier was still a huge step up in life. She didn't understand that his new promotion was really intended as an insult. Only the worst places received names related to water, and he was being sent to cold stream. Jagdish kissed his wife. I must go. I can't be late. He limped from their small home, through the streets of the city, south toward his new assignment, guarding the very bastard who had ruined his life. The fallen protector's appearance had changed. He'd not shaved or cut his hair since the slaughter. His beard was long and unkempt, his hair wild and filthy, and now he truly looked like the castless dog that he was. Like the other prisoners, he was dressed in grey rags. The only noticeable difference was that sword. What does he do? Nothing much, Rizalda Jagdish. The prison guard told him. We let them out into the yard for most of the afternoon, but he keeps to himself. I think the other prisoners are scared of him. He exercises, sword forms mostly, then runs several laps around the yard, but that's it. When their time is up, we ask him to return to his cell, and he does. Then he just sits there and stares off into nothing. Jagdish stood at the tower railing, looking down into the yard and the prisoners who had segregated themselves into groups. Most of them were here because of crimes not severe enough to warrant execution, but a judge had found them to have temperaments unfit for a period of slavery. His new charges were mostly thieves, debtors, and deserters. The roster said he had a few murderers and rapists from the warrior caste who would serve their time and then be returned to duty, where murder and rape weren't necessarily crimes, as long as they remembered to only do it to their approved enemies and not their own people. He also had some workers guilty of that level of crime who'd not been executed, which told him they came from families with enough money to bribe a judge. Then there were the hostages, warriors taken from other houses in border raids, held here until their families paid a ransom, or they were traded for Vidal men being held in other lands. But none of those mundane prisoners interested Jagdish right now. As the prisoner caused any problems... He had five hundred charges, but there was only one who could be called the prisoner. No, sir. He's unfailingly polite. In fact, Nayak Suchart was surprised by one of the more violent prisoners, who started choking him with a length of chain. Before any of us could get there, Ashok appeared and beheaded the attacker. Cut his head right off like it was nothing. Then he just walked back to his cell. Saved Suchart's life, more than likely. Yes. I'm sure they call him the Black Heart because it overflows with mercy. I wouldn't say that, Rizalda. It wasn't mercy so much as annoyance. he told the prisoners that were watching that he wouldn't abide anyone breaking the law in his presence. Scared them, that's for sure. Assaults have been down, and we've not had a single riot since he's been here. We used to have fights between the different hostage gangs all the time, but now they're all scared of getting on his bad side. Most of the prisoners seem happy You know, having a bit of entertainment The law didn't condemn them here to be happy, Nayak Jagdish said Not that he particularly cared about the nuances of the law He just wanted to fulfill this dead-end detail Until a proper war started Because then his value as a border scout Would far outweigh his reputation as a lousy personal guard What do you mean, entertainment? The jewels, sir Wait, you've not been told about the duels? I'm a soldier, nobody ever tells me anything What duels? Chief Judge Harter's orders Anyone who wishes to try and take the magic sword Is allowed to duel the prisoner for it We're required to let them fight They show up at all times Not just warriors, but Harter even said to allow workers Maybe he thinks somebody will get lucky or the sword will find somebody it likes better. Hell, he's even let other men from other houses have a shot. Said if an outsider won, they'd be given a Vidal obligation and promoted to the first cast. That reeked of desperation. But a promotion to the highest status was a rare thing indeed. Jagdish watched the prisoner, who had found a lip of rock on the perimeter wall and was doing chin-ups with his fingertips. How many has he beaten? I don't know. But probably every fool crazy enough to try and earn himself a better place in the entire region. So far, he's been here six months, so 45, maybe 50. I'd have to check the guest log at the gatehouse. I'm surprised you haven't heard. I've been preoccupied lately. We've even had a problem with spectators bribing guards to come inside so they can watch. That's what got our last Rizolda transferred. The judges must have not liked that one of us thought of a way to take bribes for something before they could. He trailed off when Jagdish didn't laugh. That nonsense ends. This is a prison, not a circus. Well, it's been like we've had our own personal arena and the prison has a champion gladiator. This must be how the first cast live in the capital, the guard said with a wistful tone. How many of these challengers has the prisoner killed? Not more than ten or twelve, I think. It looks like he tries to let them live. Most he soundly beats. Then he gives them a lecture about how to fight better before sending them on their way. Them who piss him off, though, they go into the furnace in parts. The black heart doesn't strike me as the patient sort, but he's got a particular sort of honor to him. The fact that one of his guards seemed so impressed by the prisoner annoyed Jagdish to no end. Only the lowest of his caste were given this assignment. There was never any chance for glory, but plenty of opportunity for failure. If they fulfilled their duty, none of their betters would ever notice, but if one of their prisoners escaped or killed a guard... There would be plenty of shame The prison guards didn't get to do the things a warrior was born to do So it was no surprise they would be impressed by a fighter of Blackheart's skill I want to speak to him You sure that's a good idea, sir? I mean, I heard you were there that night Tomorrow, after exercise Send the rest back to their cells But have the prisoner stay in the yard I will meet him alone that night Jagdish lay in bed beside Pakpa thinking about what he was going to do the next day Most would say it was foolish but as a proud warrior he couldn't let such an opportunity pass Low born without any connections the only other way he could rise in status was to become a war hero A duel made perfect sense except for that whole dying part
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jedkowitz. And the buzzing of wings in an alien planetary hive as it strives to cool down the excitement generated by the Queen, reading a bunch of bane books, lest it result in an explosion and all those cute larvae frying in the sun. Plus, thanks, praise, and huzzas for James L. Cambius, author of Arcad's World. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.